0: going this way the young ones coming over that's great all right thank you for the workers too that are helping with the children there they go If you've been with us the last few weeks, you remember we started off something of asking people what was maybe a book on prayer that most had an impact on you. And it was very interesting, the first one we have. And we have somebody here, John Graham, I hope he's here. John? John? John. I'm sorry, I'm looking over here. I was turned sideways so you could see. Yeah, that was it. (laughs) I was thinking of something else, kind of like, oh never mind, I better not say that. Okay. John, you can say anything you want up to two minutes, so come on up if you would. No, actually, you've got five, so come on up if you would. Uh, Here's the for you, by the way. Make sure it's on. Green light. It's actually like yellow. Try
1: it and see if that works. All right, can you hear me? Yes. All right, perfect. Okay, well, uh, the book I wanted to share this morning is called Reese Howells' Intercessor. It's a biography of a guy named Reese Howells. You probably figured that out. Um, Reese Howells was a, a, a Welsh coal miner uh, who the Lord uh, called into a powerful life of prayer. He got to see amazing things happen in his life, was part of a revival in Africa, and uh, eventually helped to found the Wales uh, Bible College, which I believe still exists. Huh. Uh, and so it was a really uh, great book for me. And the things I took away the most from this book, at least the five minutes worth things I took away from the book. Uh, the first is that uh, prayer um, is so much more than we let it be that uh, prayer is not just about God wanting to bless our meals, which is great, you know, be grateful for your food, and it's not about God wanting to keep bad things from happening to us, but that God really wants to still move in our world in ways that are impossible uh, without him, and he wants to do that in part uh, through his people's prayers, that God still wants to heal, he still wants to revive, he still wants to um, turn hard hearts, he still wants to uh, maybe even raise the dead who knows And it's not that we can just claim these things and God has to perform it as a genie But the idea is that we have uh, I think limited what God wants to do in prayer uh, and Reese Howells by being obedient by saying, you know God what do you want to see happen? Where are you already working and by joining God in prayer saw amazing amazing things happen the other big Lesson I took away on prayer uh, was that a great prayer life requires great faith uh, but that great faith requires a great memory, and what I mean is that sometimes we look at the stories of faith in the Bible and we see, "Wow, I could never have that kind of faith." And the answer is, "Well, yeah, not yet, but what if you let God prove Himself in small things first, and then over time you were able to believe for the great things?" Um, one of my favorite stories in the book. A uh, reason is why feel called to go start a work in a nearby town, uh, and they pray with their friends. Everyone says, "Yep, yeah, this is definitely what God's up to." So they don't have money for a train ticket, so by faith, they step out and they just go to the train station saying, well, if God wants this, he'll provide the fund somehow. And they're feeling really proud of themselves for being so full of faith. And when they get there, God, Reese feels God saying to him, basically, if you had the money, because you believe me for that, right, what would you be doing right now? Well, I'd be in line. Then why aren't you in line? And so now... Reese Howells is just stressing out, feeling very awkward. He gets in line. It keeps moving up, moving up. He's the second person in line, and the person right in front of him, a total stranger, turns around and says, "Oh man, I can't make my appointment after all. Here's some money," and just runs off. And so all of a sudden, now Reese Howells is there what a with coincidence. this money. How crazy! But because Reese believed the small things, he got to see God do great things eventually too. And so what I took away from that is anybody, anybody can have a powerful prayer life, but it's going to be really awkward and embarrassing along the way, but it's going to be worth it. So. Hmm. John, is this still in print? Uh, I don't know. This is very old. I think it's still in print. I was like Amazon. I'm pretty sure it is. So. I, I, I just ordered it off Amazon. Well, there you go. See? Wow, thank you, Michael. Another answered prayer right there. So. <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> okay, thank you, John. Uh, thank you. If you have a book that you want to uh, share with us, that'd be great. We'd be happy to do that. So, let's pray as we get ready to turn uh, to God's Word. Lord, we thank you that we had the gift of singing today to bring our praise to you, to give you the thanks for all that you've done, all that you're doing, and all that you're yet going to do in our lives and in this world. Lord, we thank you for the Scriptures. We thank you that the Scriptures that you've given us in the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, that, Father, we can fully give our lives to them to know that it is from you, And we don't have to kind of pick it apart, but we can hear your good word through your scriptures. Would you be with us now, Lord? Help us to be able to hear your good scriptures today, that it would touch our lives, that it would challenge us, encourage us, that we could be the women and the men that you would want us to be, having an impact on this world. Father, we pray for what's going on in the Middle East. We know of Christians and other Christian groups and other groups as well that are going through intense suffering. Father, it's hard to imagine that they're taking Christian children and cutting their heads off. Father, that just seems so out of the world that we even recognize, and yet we realize it is a broken world and that we desperately need you, Lord Jesus. We, Father, we pray for our government. We pray for our president. pray that they would be wise in decisions that are made. And that, Father, that you would give us a commitment to prayer, to know that there's so many people that are suffering in so many ways. Father, help us now. Encourage us and strengthen us through your scriptures, we pray. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've been with us in the recent weeks, we've been working through a series in 1 Corinthians. And we came this morning to what's one of the best known books in the New Testament. And it's the love chapter. Probably if you've been to a lot of weddings like I have, one of the most important one is this one, love is kind, love is this, patient goes through all the lists. It is a beautiful book. It's a beautiful thing. It's really short, and yet there's so much in that passage. And what's interesting, though, is that passage, which is used so much, is often used so poorly in terms of what it really means. Let me give you an illustration that, by that, by the way. Um, many of you are familiar with um, Let me just give you a little background here for those who were not here last week. We're talking there about the love chapter that we're talking about. but We're talking about how important context is. Because this passage seems a little strange. Here he's talking about, you know, if you're going to speak in tongues, you can only have two, you can have three if this person's not talking. And suddenly it seems like out of the blue, he changed the subject and said, you know what, I want to talk about love. And so it's kind of a strange thing, and so the context of it is important. Some of you may remember Thomas Merton, or not remember, he's, he's still going, but I mean, he talked about the fact how that passage, that passage is a love chapter that everybody's so familiar with, he said, you can't believe how many times it's used in a poor way, in a way that it's not really even connected with the context of what's going on. Merton talked about the fact that when he was in a British boarding school, he talked about how the guy came up, that he was the leader of a group, and to explain it. And so he said this pastor, the leader, the head of the school got up and said this. He describes this man who was the leader of the school, the Christian school. He's tried the guy. He said, he was tall, powerful, a handsome man with hair graying at the temples and a big English chin, broad, uncreased brow with sentences like... I stand for fair play and good sportsmanship written all over it. His greatest sermon was on the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians, and a wonderful chapter indeed. But his exegesis was a bit strange. He called his interpretation of the word charity in this passage. In fact, he said it simply stood for all that we mean when we call a man a chap or a gentleman. In other words, charity means good sportsmanship, cricket, the decent thing, wearing the right kind of clothes, using the proper spoon, not being a cad. That's, that's what it's all about. There he stood in a public pulpit. He raised his chin above the head of all the boys in the black coats and said, one might go through the chapter in St. Paul and simply substitute the word gentlemen for the word charity, wherever it occurs. If I talk with the tongues of men and angels, but not being a gentleman, I've become a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. A gentleman is patient, is kind. A gentleman envieth not, dealieth not perversely, is not puffed up. This guy says, you know, the apostles would have been rather surprised at that concept of the passage. And he's saying, how can people miss it that badly? Well, it happens all the time. And a lot of times we have passages of scripture that we know so well. It's like, mm-hmm, been there, got the t-shirt, now I can sleep. Well, let's not do that. Because this short little passage has so much to teach us. And I'm, I can tell you, after hours and hours studying it during this week, I'm, I'm at times like, ouch, ouch. It's not that the seat is hard, it's that my heart is hard. And it's important for us to see what God might want to do in your life, in my life, as we go through this passage, back to review a little bit, just the different gifts he talked about last week. Talked about how the spirits and active and all that are distributing to each of the people as they go. He tells them, but decide here the greater gifts and I'll show you even a better way. And then he goes right into this passage, dealing with the issue, what does life, lo- love not look like? And then he's going to go to what life really looks like, what love really looks like. And he starts off in this very, very interesting verse, He said, if I speak the languages of men and of angels, but do not have love, I'm a sounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Look at that verse for a moment. If I speak in the languages of men, again we have in the previous passage the last three or four weeks talking about the fact people who are speaking in another language or we talk about speaking in tongues and he's saying you know, you're so many of these people were so enamored in the fact that I can speak in tongues, I speak in tongues more than you do, da da. Paul said, You're not getting it, are you? This is a gift from God that allows you to be able to speak even in languages you don't know. We don't really know a lot about it, but it says when it says, I speak in the languages of men and angels, we do know from early Jewish writings that that many of the rabbis believed that there was some kind of angelic language. And if you were godly enough and special enough, you would get this opportunity to kind of know and to speak the language. You know, you could speak like this language or that language, but it was like an angelic language. And so Paul's making this point. If I speak in the languages of men and of angels, like it doesn't get any better than that, but I do not have love I'm a sounding gong or a clanging symbol. Like, what's the point? Well, you were so special. I can talk to my angels. Yeah? Do you love? No? Well, then it's worthless. And notice what he says. He says it's a clanging symbol. And he says in verse 2, if I have the gift of prophecy, remember prophecy is way at the top of his list, absolutely important for the early church. The New Testament is still being written. A lot of it's got yet to be written, and they need to know what does God calling them to do. When they're talking about prophecy, it's not so much prophesying about what's happening in the future; it's foretelling what's God what what God wants for us now. How does He want His people to live in the situations they're in now, which is some very very difficult? He said, "Okay, if I have the gift of prophecy, that's great to have it." He says, "And I understand all mysteries. Well, wouldn't that be neat to understand all mysteries and all knowledge?" boy that you'd be really something if you understood all prophecy you understood all mysteries you understood all knowledge man you'd have just about everything wouldn't you and he said and if i even have faith so that i can move mountains remember jesus said and talked about that if you have the faith you can move mountains wow if you had it all you got everything you could ever imagine and he says but you don't have love nothing it's worthless All these things that we think are so special. Oh, faith, mysteries, knowledge, all of it. Yeah, they're all good. But do you love? What do you see in the life of Jesus Christ? Love beyond that which most of us could not even imagine. And he says, you have all that, but you don't have love. He says, I'm nothing. Then he says in verse 3, and if I donate my goods to feed the poor. And if I give my body to be burned but do not have love, what's the point? I gain nothing. By the way, I'm using the Holman Christian Standard Bible and some of you are have different translations. There may be a little slight difference between your translation and what I'm doing. When it says, if I donate my goods to feed the poor and if I give my body to be burned, mine says body to be burned, there's two Greek words that are almost identical one talks about being burned, and the other one talks about boasting. So if yours says boasting, it's, not a, it's a very possible one. It's just a difficult passage. But notice what he says. If I, even if I give my body to be burned, we'll deal with that one. But I don't have love. I gain nothing. Now remember at this time, some Christians were facing burning. And it was a terrible thing. And he said, there were people who were willing to go through that. Say, you know, you can burn me if you need to, but I'm not going to go against Christ. People go, wow, martyrdom, that's amazing. And he said, yeah, that was quite a deal. But he said, do you have love? "Um, No. What's the point? He keeps coming back, saying all these wonderful things that God has given you, but you don't have love, then there's something wrong so he goes from that to saying what does love really look like and that's an important passage that he's got right here look at what he says he says love is patient love is kind i talked to about a minute ago that reading some of these passages and studying these verses is like gulp why does the very first one have to be patient my daughters are joking already Dad yells at the caught traffic lights, okay? (laughs) Patience, I have to admit, is not my greatest area, sphere of life. I'm working on it. God is working on it in his own way. Kara is laughing today, but (laughs) I am trying. Um, Whoop! I lost it somewhere right there. Oh, be patient. (laughs) Come on, Tom, cut me a break. <laughs> okay, Ignore this guy over here. Okay. Uh, okay. Love is patient. Love is kind. What's interesting is in this passage, he talks about being patient and about being kind. These are the very words that he takes out of the book of Romans there when he writes in Romans. When it says, do you despise the riches of his kindness and restraint and patience? It could be. He says, these are... Good words. I'm going to take this one. This is going to work well in this passage. And so he says, love is patient. That's a hard one. Love is kind. Then he has a saying, love does not envy. I think if we had time and went around the room, every one of us could think of a time where we envied somebody else. Somebody else has a bigger car. Somebody else has better children. Someone's got a better spouse. Someone's got a better such and such. It just seems to happen. Erasmus, one of the great humanists, and also a guy who knew of, uh, Luther very well, they differed particularly in certain areas, but both brilliant men, he talked about envy. He said, he said right on here, he said, nature, more of a stepmother than a mother, in several ways, has sown a seed of evil in the hearts of mortals. Especially in more thoughtful men, which makes them dissatisfied with their own lot and envious of another's. That happens a lot. How come they've got the better house? How come they've got the better marriage? How come they've got 3.5 children and we've only got two? You know, all these things that go in our minds. And he's saying, Listen, you've got to deal with it. He goes on, verse 5 Love does not act improperly, it's not selfish. It's not provoked. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Let me tell you, that's a hard one for a lot of us. You ever met a person, who talk about, hey, I remember one thing that happened 38 years ago. I sure remember. I remember just like it was yesterday. And it's, you know, every day they're still thinking about it. Paul's saying, really? What about keeping no record of wrongs? Realizing that we are Christ, we are people who deserved death and hell and we've been given life, why would we not be able to forgive? And so he says, talk, he uses back in that passage in 2 Corinthians, he said, Christ did not reckon our sins against us, saying, if he was willing to do that for us, what about us? Why could we not do that as well? Gordon Fee, Fee, who wrote a major, very thick commentary on this book, he said, he wrote this, love absolutely rejects the most pernicious form of rejoicing over evil. And then here's what it is. He said, gossiping about the misdeeds of others. That is easy, so easy. Did you hear about what happened with so-and-so? Yes, can you believe it? And then somebody else tells somebody else and the story gets a little bigger. And by the time it's gone through 10 different people, it's almost like unbelievable. And he's saying love absolutely rejects that pernicious form of rejoicing over evil, gossiping about the misdeeds of others. And so he says in verse 6, love finds no joy in unrighteousness. When you see evil things that are going on, you don't want to be part of that. But what it does, it rejoices in the truth. To know where things are at work, where God is working in the lives of people. Gordon D. Fee, the same guy, wrote it this way. He put it this way. Here again, by his use of the word of agape, Paul is especially reflecting the character of God, which is now displayed by his people. The person full of Christian love joins in rejoicing on the side of behavior that reflects the gospel. For every victory gained, every forgiveness offered, every act of kindness, such a person refuses to take part in evil. Is that true about you? Is it true about me? And I think we're just now losing their thing. So Rachel, I think you may need to advance this for me. It says flashing. Number 7. He bears, love bears all things believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. The New English Bible puts away, there's nothing love cannot face. There's nothing that love cannot face. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they're going to come to an end. As for languages or tongues that may be in your translation, as for languages or tongues, they're going to cease. As for knowledge, it'll come to an end. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. And then here is this famous verse, verse 10. But when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. Now, I don't want to go too deep in this whole thing, but verse 10 has had its own kind of history. Um, One of the great, great Presbyterian leaders of the 18th, 19th century (coughs) century was B.B. Warfield. Presbyterian guy, brilliant guy. And he dealt with this passage. What does it mean, it says, but when the perfect comes? Well, it's an interesting thing. Um, Some people take it in different ways. But when it says the perfect comes, he said what's talking about the perfect there is that means that this has come to the end of the time of the charismatic things. In other words, you're not going to have the miracles, you're not going to have people speaking in tongues. And this is why what we're talking about, a cessationist thing, that that has happened in the third and fourth century, but it's now ended. And that became very popular. But of course when the Pentecostal movement came from you know west part of the United States and kind of swept over across America and into Europe and Africa, Now many people look at that verse in a different way, but when the perfect comes, uh, Dallas Seminary, where I'm so grateful that I went, in their statement, it talks about that's what they believe. It means it's the end of that period of time, first to fourth fifth centuries, where they had all those amazing miracles, that doesn't happen now. The reality is that doesn't work well in what the passage seems to be saying. When it says, but when the perfect comes, it seems to be speaking about when the perfect comes, that means when Christ comes in the fullness. When Christ comes in the fullness, then we're not going to just see it partially. We're going to be with the Lord. And how wonderful that is going to be. And so if you notice what he says in this passage, and I love this part, verse 9, for we know in part. There's a lot that we know, but there's so much we don't know. And we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the return of Christ, then the partial will come to an end. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the the partial will come to an end. Karl Barth, the famous uh, uh, writer, uh, said this. He said, put it this way, because the sun rises, all lights are extinguished. In other words, once the sun comes up, you don't need to have your lamp going anymore. And that's what's going to happen when Christ returns. And we'll be with him forever. This passage is very important. Notice what he says, and many of us are so familiar with this passage. It says, for when I was a child, I spoke like a child, thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. His point is this, you know, we don't, you know, for little children, we don't expect them to be able to do, you know, calculus. We don't expect them to understand the major issues that are going on in the world. They're children. We let them to be living as children live. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. He says, you know, when I became a man, I put aside childish things. It's not appropriate for what we have now. And so it says, for now, we see indistinctly. Now, your translation may be a little bit. It may be said, it may be, uh, what is any, any of you? Yeah, what else? Anybody else is something else different than indistinctly? Huh, okay, anything else? whatever it is, it's saying, it's like something that we don't quite see. For now we see indistinctly as an in emir. What's interesting in this passage is Corinth, where Paul did that more ministry for a year and a half, and where he had so many problems, and continues to have problems, not now, today, I mean 2,000 years ago. But the many of those mirrors were made in Corinth. They were famous in Corinth. But he's saying, for now we see indistinctly as an in mirror. The mirrors there were nothing like what you have in your bathroom. They are mostly made out of metal. In Corinth, they were mostly made out of copper. And boy, they would sand them and they'd work on them till they would really shine. But even when you looked at it, it's like, well, I look rather weird, don't I? Yeah, it is. It's not great, but it's certainly better what everybody else seems to have. And they were very expensive, by the way. And Corinth was a place where many of them were made. And so he uses this as a good example. For now, we see indistinctly, as I come here, in other words, I can see the image I can't get the whole picture. But then, face to face, now I know in part, but then I'll know fully as I'm fully known. When Christ comes, when everything is put right, we'll understand Him. And then He comes with the three great things. Now these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. That's interesting. Why did he choose those? You could say, well, the greatest of these is faith. Faith is one of the most important things in the Christian life. What about hope? Hope is a good thing. You really can't live life as a Christian without having hope, the hope of knowing what Christ is going to do. But he comes back to love. These three remain. Faith, hope, and love. And Notice what he says in this next verse. Well, it's really, go back to Grace, Rachel, right there. These three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Uh, this guy, Leon Morris, some of you know him not personally, I mean. He was an Australian theologian. Brilliant guy. He wrote over 50 books himself, personally. Very, very smart guy. And he was, walking, he was talking about this passage, about how love being the most important. And here's what he said. He said, the commentator, speaking about himself and all who've written books and stuff, the commentator who, cannot, who um, cannot finish on writing the chapter without a sense that soiled and clumsy hands have been touching a thing of exquisite beauty and holiness. I have to admit, reading this, I had the same thing. Like This book, this word, this passage is so beautiful. I'm probably a fool to be touching it because it's so special the hands that touch their beauty of holiness. Here is what is true of all Scripture is true in the special measure that no commentator can be adequate to so great a theme. There's no one, you could nothing you could write that would be as great as the love that we see, particularly that we see in God. But the greatest of these is love. So here's the very simple question what kinda lover are you as people look at you as they see your life where is love seen in your life where maybe the areas in your life where there's not love where God is calling you to move in a new realm of loving someone that's very difficult to love someone that you wish you didn't have to love But the greatest of these is love. Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you that even though it's a short passage, it's full of a lot of things that we need to hear, that we need to know. We ask that you'd be at work with us and through us. We pray that of time in our scriptures, that Lord, you would use us to become the women and the men that you want us to be. Be with us. Encourage us, we ask. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.